It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, some of you may have been surprised when you saw Boris Johnson getting up yesterday, surrounded, as ever, uh, by the Brothers Grimm, uh, who looked even grimmer than usual, by the way, Chris Whitty uh, and Patrick Valance, as he talked about the lifting of all restrictions. He didn't quite go the whole hog. He didn't quite talk about uh, lifting quarantine for people coming back from foreign holidays. He didn't quite talk about, yet, uh, the schools and the bubbles of the schools and what's going to happen with those. But what he did do uh, was he said there will be no vaccine passports to go to the pub. There will be no... uh, limitations of, of, of numbers of people on mass outdoor events or sporting events. Uh, there will be no more rule of six indoors. Uh, work from home is now no longer required. You should get rid of that and have people coming back into work. Nightclubs, uh, strip clubs apparently, and all nighttime entertainment finally allowed to reopen. I'm sure there'll be some uh, very happy people down in the House of Commons about that. Uh, ordering at the bar returns, so you can actually go up to a bar. Do you remember how to do that? I don't think I've done that actually for quite a long time. Go up to a bar, not a window on the outside of a pub not sit down and ask for somebody to come and bring you a drink actually go to the bar and order a drink and of course uh, no masks there will be some places where you might be asked to wear a mask but nobody can make you wear one and nobody can charge you a fine for not wearing one let's talk to Pauline Latham Conservative MP for Mid Derbyshire Pauline very good morning to you morning Mike thank you very much indeed it's a great day isn't it it is and I'm absolutely delighted um those people who don't want it to happen I think it's quite interesting when you hear the media that if it hadn't happened, they'd have been quizzing as to why not. But now it has happened. They're saying it shouldn't. Yes. So there's always going to be people against it. But I'm delighted that we are going to have our freedoms back because that's what it is. And if you want to wear a mask, you can wear a mask. If you want to stay at home, you can stay at home. Nobody's going to force you to go to the pub. Nobody's going to force you to go to a nightclub. Um, So there's all sorts of things that you can do if you don't, if you want to, but you don't have to go. And that's important. It's choice. And that's what Britain's about. Absolutely right. I must admit, I found it slightly um, ironic, uh, if not to say uh, completely and utterly ridiculous, that Beth Rigby from Sky News yesterday actually had the temerity to suggest to Boris that taking uh, masks off might be considered to be reckless, given that she was suspended from her own job for doing something which was against the rules. Yes. And, you know, I will continue to wear my mask until I allowed not to because we have to set an example irritating though it is mm. but you no know, i will do that till the 19th and if we have to, had to um continue in certain circumstances i would have done it but I, you know i will make that decision for myself yes now. exactly and that isn't it is- funny how it's now become already a kind of divided uh, um, country on whether or not to wear a mask. I mean, I don't know what's happened to people because I was always brought up to believe that we had self-determination in this country, uh, that we had rules that we applied uh, to the various reasons why we wanted criminality uh, to be contained. We had rules about driving and traffic. And people were actually saying, uh, I was seeing on social media yesterday, oh, you might as well do away with all the traffic rules as if that's the same thing. It's not the same thing. No, it isn't. Um, we talk about personal responsibility in this country, and that's what I'm about. Mm. People can make their choices, and they, if they feel they're going to put somebody in danger, they can take avoidance action. But most of us won't be, because, you know, it's the summer. And yes, there may be some issues in the winter. I don't want to know about that at the moment. I want some freedom to be out and about and do what I want to yeah. do. Um, because we haven't been able to for nearly 18 months. That's a long time in somebody's life. Well, it really is. Do you think that people have become so kind of propagandised that they believe there to be actual danger 
lurking in the air. Do you think people actually think that? Yeah, I do. And I think they've been very frightened by the doom and gloom merchants who have constantly, as you said, looked gloomy, predicted gloom. And yes, sometimes they have been right, but they're not right at the moment because the deaths are not going up Mm. at the same rate, anything like the same rate as uh, the infections. And, you know, we get colds, we get flu, we don't all die from them, but there are more people dying from ischemic heart disease than anything like um, dying from COVID. So we should have some comparisons. And, And I'd like to see some comparisons as to Who's dying from cancer now compared with COVID? Who's dying from heart disease compared with COVID? We'd never given those statistics, and that would be extremely useful to have. Yes, well, funnily enough, I'm just looking at the telegraphs of figures here today, and normally they have the number of deaths, and uh, they compare that to the number of overall deaths. But this morning, that's not even on the front page. So I don't know whether that means uh, that there weren't any deaths yesterday, and that's why they haven't put it there. But normally speaking, it would be somewhere between 10 and 20 over the past month or so, uh, compared to a total of around about 1,500 on average. So there's an awful lot of people dying of an awful lot of things, and very few of them are dying from COVID, and that's been the case for a very long time. And it's going to get worse because those people during COVID who've not been to the doctor and therefore not been referred to a cancer specialist or a heart specialist, there will be more of those because it'll be more advanced by the time they do get some treatment. So we're actually going to have a pandemic of cancer deaths. Yeah. Absolutely right. And I'm very heartened uh, to hear Sajid Javid this morning talking about how he is the Secretary of State for Health. He is not the Secretary of State for COVID. And therefore, he has put all people's health and every sort of problem that we have with the health system. And there are many of them, by the way, um, uh, that he has to address all of that, not just one small part of it. I think he's a breath of fresh air because he's able to come and look at it with a rational point of view. Um, Matt Hancock, in many ways did an amazing job and certainly the vaccine was fantastic but he'd been in this head down working seven days a week 52 weeks of the year for 18 months and so i think he lost his ability to see it from a distance and to see it in the round Mm. we do have to worry about the economy we do have to worry about other deaths we do have to worry about people's mental health and that's hasn't been taken into account and there are children who because they've not been able to hug anybody, can't hug people anymore. We need to all get back to normality and live with COVID. Mm. And there will still be deaths from it. We're not going to get rid of all the deaths from COVID. But, you know, it's probably people who've not been double jabbed. It's probably people with other diseases. It's probably much older people who have chosen not to have the debt gap or can't. Yeah, no, I was told uh, a statistic yesterday that I think 88% of people currently in hospital with COVID uh, have not been vaccinated for one reason or another. Well, that's a staggering statistic. And those people who can't, I can accept it's difficult for them, but there's lots who won't. And my advice would be, now that we're going to have this freedom, go and get your jab, because you won't be able to go on holiday abroad if you don't have it. So... You might as well get on with it. Well, because that's the thing that I think we require the most, um, because tourism in both directions is very, very much valued in this country uh, as well as abroad. And as much as we talk about the Greeks and the Spanish needing our tourist dollars, uh, so do we need tourist dollars from people outside of the UK. So, So hopefully, once all of the things can be opened up, I see that the Germans have now said uh, you can now go to Germany. There's, uh, Angela Merkel has lifted whatever mad idea she had of banning us from going there. Um, so I'd like to see before the end of the summer, you know, like London back to normal with full of tourists and people that you have to walk around because they don't know where they're going. Yeah, I mean, that can be irritating at times. <laughs> and that's been in the past, but we really miss them now because taxi drivers haven't got fares, restaurants aren't full shops aren't full, tourist attractions aren't full, and we've got so many tourist attractions in this country, not just in London, mm. but not only coming to London, but there's so much out there in the country yeah. for tourists to come and see, and I think it's really important that we market those to the wider world and say, look, we are nearly all double jump very soon, come, mm. come and see what we've got to offer. And I'm sure people will want to do that. And, and you know, yeah. the, the year, if, if for no other reason, the year has been really weird because of the fact that so few people have gone anywhere. Yes. And, you know, lots of people are staycationing um, and we're having a week later in the summer in Cornwall. But we are hoping to go 
to Spain mm. because I've got a brother there who's got dementia. I won't go and see him before he forgets who I am. Yes. Um, even though he's younger than me, it's terribly sad. But mm. I, I want, whilst I'm there, to have a few days' holidays. So yes. if we can just open that up too, that will help the airline industry and the, and the wider airline industry. It's not just about planes taking off, it's about servicing, it's about all the other jobs that come with plane travel. And we need those people to get back to work. Mm. I know somebody whose daughter works on one of the um, cheaper airlines, and she's just been working in a shop because she's had no other income yeah. or little other income. And she she wants to get back flying. She loves it. Yeah, absolutely right. So did we all. Pauline, stay with us for a moment. We're just going to take a little short uh, break and then we will be back. We're talking to Pauline Latham, MP, Conservative for Mid Derbyshire, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Talking to Pauline Latham, Conservative MP for Mid Derbyshire. Um, I'm rather disappointed. I suppose I should learn to become more disappointed as every day passes uh, that Sir Keir Starmer has now decided that the best way forward for the Labour Party uh, is to call this reckless, uh, Pauline. I mean, are they ever going to learn that actually just being anti-Tory is never going to get them anywhere? Well, exactly. I mean, he, he doesn't know where he is, does he? Because he's supported all the measures we had so far. And now when we're moving forward, because the cases are so low, he's calling it reckless. Mm. And he just feels he's got to make some statement. And he doesn't really, I don't think he really thinks through the consequences of what he's saying, because... People are ready to move. They're ready to move forward. We all want to get out of this carefully and, you know, taking sensible precautions without having mandated precautions. Because, you know, we're sick of being told what to do. Absolutely right. And we need to sort the schools out, Pauline, as well, because I've noticed there's been a definite kind of increase in the numbers of kids being sent home in the past two weeks. And I don't know why that's happening, really. I don't believe that it's simply a case of, um, you know, more. Oh, there's more cases um, or there's more positive tests. They seem to be sort of enjoying it. Some some schools are completely closed altogether. I know. It's ridiculous. They've had such a poor um, education over the last two years. Uh, it's really hard for youngsters, particularly those at examiners or transitioning from primary to secondary. They've had a dreadful time. And they need to be back in school. They need to be working. Um, we've only got another couple of weeks of term, but we need in September to absolutely crack down and not have people being sent home because they're missing out on education. And if you've missed almost two years of education, we've had homeschooling, but it's not the same as being in the classroom. No, exactly. We'll never recover. No, quite. And they'll forget uh, what some things that they've never actually learned because they've not learned them. They haven't learned the social skills. Uh, if you've got a kid who's just literally started in primary school in the past 12 months, what the hell do they think school is all about? Well, they don't know. I mean, some of those little ones that have gone in for odd days or weeks um, can't tie their shoelaces, can't take themselves to the toilet on their own, mm. can't eat with a knife or fork. But, I mean, they are really struggling, some of those little ones, and mm. they need help. They need serious help to socialise with other children because they've been kept at home away from other children. And that's not natural for little ones, and it's not good for mums and dads who are not socialising either, and they're stuck with little children in the house who need entertaining 100% of the time. Mm. And that's really tough on those mums and dads. No, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about Wednesday because the big game, obviously, uh, at Wembley, England against Denmark. We saw some scenes on Saturday night, Pauline, in London and I think probably in other parts of the country as well uh, with people just having a great time celebrating and the police were kind of wading in. Now, I don't know if that was necessary. They made, they made a sort of handful of arrests, but I would have thought it would be a good idea to kind of give the police, um, not at the night off exactly, but just say to them, you know, could you not be a little bit more... Um, understanding of what's going on here. You know, there are people who have been locked down for a year. They're celebrating because they know that now uh, we're on the backside of the of the COVID problem. And, you know, they're young, uh, they're enthusiastic, they've probably had a few drinks, and England have got through to the final of the Euros. Yes. Um, I mean, it would be fantastic on Wednesday if we get through. Um, and there will be more scenes like that. But they're outside mainly. Mm. Mainly outside, and we're not supposed to be catching it outside. So... You know, why do we have to be heavy-handed? Why can't we accept that young people, even if they haven't had a job, are less likely to be very ill right. and less likely to die? Let them enjoy life. We've had so little enjoyment over the last 18 months. We've got to enjoy 
when England are doing so well, and I hope continue to do so. Well, absolutely right, and a terrible story overnight, um, which you would think Sadiq Khan might have something to say about in London. Two teenagers stabbed to death within seven hours of one another uh, in South and, and East London. And, I mean, mm. this is a terrible problem that the police don't seem to be solving. No, they don't. And I don't think he's given them, the Sadiq Khan's given them the tools to do it. I mean, if they need to get these people, they need to stop this terrifying knife crime because it's happening, I mean, it's happening all over the country, but much more in London than anywhere else. Mm. It's a tragedy for these young lives to be short. And the parents, um, they're, I mean, they're devastated and broken and the brothers and sisters are broken and it'll take them a very, very long time to get their lives back together. Mm, absolutely right. Pauline, great to talk to you. We'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Pauline Latham, Conservative MP for Mid Derbyshire. Coming up uh, a little bit later on, uh, we've got Donna Harvey from the US of A. We've got Donna McLeod, who's popping into the studio uh, from Scotland. Kevin O'Sullivan is with us. But Dr Irfan Malik uh, is a GP. He's going to be talking to us as well. Lots, lots more to come, including your calls, of course. 0344 499 1000. Many of you must be very happy at what Boris Johnson finally did yesterday and is going to do on the 19th of July. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk now to Dr Christian Nemitz, uh, Head of Political Economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs, author as well of Left Turn Ahead, because a remarkable uh, document has come across our desk here at Talk Radio, uh, in which it says, as a survey done by the IEA, 67% of young Britons want a socialist economic system. I can't believe they even know what that is. Christian, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to talk you? to you. Nice to talk to you. I'm very well as well. I mean, this uh, sort of confirms my prejudices, I would say, about some of the kind of um, bedwetting, limp-wristed young people that we have in this country who seem to think that socialism is a good thing, despite the fact that when you ask them what they mean by socialism, all they can say is, well, it's fair, isn't it? It's nice and fair. Everybody, everybody has the same things and it's fair. Well, it isn't fair, is it? Uh, no, but that is exactly one of the problems. Uh, that's one of the questions, actually, that we asked in that poll. We asked people, uh, what comes to mind when you hear the word socialism? What are your most common associations with that? And it is exactly words such as fairness, the workers, the public, equal, uh, communal, things like that come to mind. Uh, we've also um, given them the option of naming some real-world examples. Mm. Uh, we've had Venezuela in there, the former showcase of uh, 21st century socialism, but absolutely uh, or virtually nobody mentions that. And that uh, is part of the problem, that uh, socialism isn't judged by its real-world record. Right. And so did they mention the Soviet Union at all? Did they mention, you know, the North Vietnamese? communist situations they mentioned china what do they talk about no uh that's uh we we had a question on that where um we asked do you agree with the following statement socialism is a good idea it just hasn't worked in practice so far because it has been badly done right. it hasn't really been tried and we had 75 percent agreeing with that statement so uh that's why you can't really defeat socialism because no matter how many times it fails um its fans will always say yeah okay but that wasn't really socialism mm. that is not what what karl marx originally had in mind and apparently that is the mainstream opinion yeah. uh, it may sound I mean, like a terrible cliche to us but it's the mainstream view well sadly it is yeah i mean these are all the same people that sang jeremy corbyn's name at glastonbury i'm assuming you know that that's sort of the this sort of slightly overprivileged middle classes who despite the fact that they have benefited massively uh, from their parents own capitalism uh, they think that maybe they should try something else Yes, Corbyn's name, uh, unfortunately, also comes up. He is also one of the most common associations with the term socialism, which shows you that this is really a continuation of this Corbynista movement, uh, the Corbyn mania that we saw break out in 2015, and then the Glastonbury chants. And uh, it just shows he is now more of a spiritual leader. He may no longer technically be <laughs> the leader of the of the opposition, but he is more a bit like, a, like what Kim Il-sung is for North Korea. Right. So he could be the sort of Islington Dalai Lama, perhaps. Yes, that combined with a sort of romantic revolutionary figure. Let's say a Dalai Lama combined with a Che Guevara style right. figure. And I mean, does anybody um, uh, have a view on national uh, nationalisation in this argument? I mean, do they believe that socialism is not just about making everything fair for everybody, but do they also mean that the workers should own the means of production? Do they also mean that, you know, all, news, all, all, all uh, corporations in the UK should be nationalised? 
Yes, we had a question on that. Uh, we, we didn't explicitly say, do you want everything to be nationalized? But we mentioned some industries as an example. Um, and uh, nationalization is certainly a big part of it. So this, this is not uh, people who just think Britain should be a bit more like Denmark mm. or more like Sweden, fluffy, uh, nice social democracy. This is proper socialism. This is about state ownership of the means of production. We had a question on that. And there, our own findings are totally in line with previous polling on this issue. There has been uh, over the past five, six years, there's been plenty of surveys on this. And uh, you always find large majorities in favor of large scale industry nationalizations. And our poll is uh, just a confirmation of that. Yes. Although, of course, when it comes to polls, actual polls and general elections and by-elections, none of these socialists uh, and their ideas ever do very well. Yeah, it could well be that uh, you have a lot of people who uh, sympathise with socialist ideas in principle, but who don't care that strongly about them. So it may not be the thing that uh, that determines their voting behaviour. And uh, in fact, what we also find is that we've also uh, presented some pro-capitalist statements on the same subjects, and we often find majority approval uh, for that as well. So meaning that you have uh, lots of people who agree simultaneously with a pro-capitalist statement and with an anti-capitalist statement, two things that are mutually exclusive, mm. and you get, you often get at least one in four people uh, agreeing with both of them at the same time, not noticing that there is a contradiction here. Mm. And this uh, shows that this isn't really a firmly entrenched view. Um, it's more a sort of default opinion. And that could explain why it doesn't automatically translate into voting outcomes. No, sure. And I mean, and I see that one of your findings was that 78% of people you questioned blame capitalism for Britain's housing crisis. And I wonder whether they know even what that housing crisis actually is or, or what is causing it, because generally speaking, a lot of young people are driven by a sort of hatred of their inability to buy a house because it's so expensive. Um, and their kind of economic outlook might be tainted by that so that when they do have enough money to buy a house, uh, they might go back to being a bit more um, capitalistic, shall we say. That could be, but unfortunately, that isn't going to happen as long as house prices are what they are and uh, rent levels as well. And uh, in that particular respect, I have some sympathy with them. Um, I obviously don't think that socialism is the solution to that, but uh, I, I can see why they would be unhappy about the status quo. And socialists have just been good at milking that, at telling them that if you want to solve the housing crisis, what you need is rent controls, what yeah. you need is an expansion of, of public housing. Now, none of this is true. There's good evidence that shows that uh, it, it really is about uh, planning restrictions, about the supply side of the, of the housing market. That is the way you have mm. to solve this problem. But that um, isn't widely known and that view isn't widely shared. So people do attribute it to capitalism, see this as a market failure, and that drives them uh, further to the left. Yes, indeed. And also the point about the whole housing sort of situation really is that it's it's terribly expensive in the southeast of England, but it's not terribly expensive everywhere in the country. In lots of parts of the country, housing is still relatively affordable compared to what people can earn uh, in order to, to, to get on with their life. So, I mean, it's a very London-centric thing, this, isn't it? Yes, unfortunately, it's not limited to London. In, in fact, if you look at uh, the ratio of house prices to incomes, there uh, is actually Oxford, which is the most expensive place in the country. And it's specifically the most prosperous parts. It's um, it's Oxford and Cambridge, it's Bath and Bristol. It's uh, the, the places where people want to live mm. are the most expensive ones. So it doesn't really help you uh, that there are parts of the country where it isn't that big a problem. Those are the parts of the country that people want to move away from, right. young people certainly. So your message from this uh, finding of this study that you've done is, is that, uh, you know, the capitalists of the world need to pay attention to this and make sure that uh, they don't actually lose sight of the fact that Presumably, you don't want this movement to grow so big that it becomes a thing. Yes, that's exactly my motivation here. Mostly addressing people on my own side of the argument, broadly defined, people who think that capitalism isn't such a bad thing and that socialism is overrated. Because I've been writing about this for five years or so now. I often get the response um, from, from people on my own side uh, who say, "Ah, well, don't take this too seriously. They will grow out of it. No, that is the big mistake. What I'm showing is that uh, this isn't limited to 18, 19, 20 year olds. People in their early 40s uh, are still 
as likely to approve of socialism as people in their late teens or, or early 20s. So in terms of attitudes to socialism, 40 is the new 20. Uh, if somebody hasn't grown out of this by, by the age of 40, they're not going to That's terribly tragic, isn't it? What a terrible indictment on our education system and the way that we have created people in this country who are completely and utterly without any form uh, of reality because, you know, they can't define what they want except for they want it to be more fair. But if you say to them, all right, well, we'll give you some more of your money and we can give it to that guy over there. Uh, suddenly, if they've got money, they don't want to do that. Well, and, and that's one of the problems that uh, socialism is usually uh, defined in relatively fluffy terms, even by its own proponents. They don't tell you specifically what I mean by that, how it's going to work is, is all just about uh, you get people talking about citizens assemblies and somehow the people uh, jointly uh, managing the economy. But nobody has yet come up with a mechanism uh, for doing that uh, in a country with 65 million inhabitants. How are you going to run the economy democratically? Are we going to have a, a Zoom call of all 65 million people where we debate about how much beer we should brew and how much bread we should bake? There's just uh, no way you, you, can, you can run an economy in a, in a democratic way. And, and that's why it's either going to be a market economy or it's a command and control economy. And there is nothing else. Yes. Well, let's hope that we now get out of the uh, command and control economy that we've had for the last year uh, and look forward to uh, getting back to normal. Dr. Christian Nimitz, thank you very much indeed. Head of Political Economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let's say a very good morning to Dr. Irfan Malik. Irfan, uh, nice to see you again. Thank you for joining us. Morning, Mike. How's it going in your neck of the woods? You're in Nottingham. Um, GP surgeries have come under fire from fairly um, uh, different places around the country. Some, as, as we were told just before the news, are operating very well. Others, not so well. I mean, presumably now that July the 19th is, is Freedom Day, in quotes, there's no reason why GP surgeries cannot return to operating as they used to. Yes, and uh, we were just discussing this uh, this morning at our practice meeting that from July the 19th, uh, restrictions are becoming less. Um, so that will get over our waiting room problem where we couldn't get that many people into our waiting room and the social distancing. Right. So I hope that in our practice um, in, in Nottingham, we'll be able to increase the face-to-face -face, uh, number of patients in more than what we're doing at the moment. And even now we're doing about 50% face-to-face. So we are doing, we have improved a lot over the yeah. last six months. I mean, a lot of people, don't get me wrong, are quite happy to have um, you know, telephone consultations and, and, and talk to people via email, and that's all fine. My argument has just always been, look, if you want to see a doctor uh, face to face, you should be able to. I, I agree with you. And I think that should be uh, a patient choice. 
but some of my colleagues disagree. They say that um, it shouldn't be patient choice. It should be discussed on the phone beforehand, and it should be a mutual decision between between the clinician and the patient. Yeah. Uh, but for my patient, for our practice, if if anybody wants to be seen face to face, we will fit them in. Yes, I think that's right. And here's a, a text that I've got from somebody called Pete, who says, my GP is rubbish. It took me 55 phone calls before I could speak to a doctor. He wouldn't see me. But after emailing photos of the wound, he wrote me a prescription for antibiotics, which I could pick up at the window. I think that's a lot of people's experience at the moment. It, it's been a very tough, uh, you know, 15, 16 months. Um, the, even the, before that, there was a lot of pressure getting into general practice, a lot of pressure on the phones, a lot of demand. Then things changed during the pandemic, and now we are seeing the backlog and demand increase. Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough time. People are going to have to wait for appointments. Um, so I'd rather work together with patients and try and try and prioritize and get the patients who really need to see us in first. Yes. I mean, one of the problems of having such a huge and, and unwieldy health system, I suppose, uh, Irfan, is that many people get shoved further and further down the queue as more uh, sort of acute patients come in ahead of them. And some people I know who have, have spoken to me who are waiting for what you might call, you know, quite important surgery, but relatively minor, are, are facing sometimes a, a year, possibly two years before they can have it done. Uh, absolutely. And that's a knock-on effect that uh, many hospital clinics uh, uh, stop seeing face-to-face -face patients. The waiting list for routine surgery operations may be up to two years now. Um, you know, and I feel very, very sorry for, for patients who are stuck in that loop. Uh, and as GPs, we can't really influence that a great deal. Um, but we just have to work together and try and get out of this mess that we're in. Yeah. No, I mean, I spoke to the mother of a GP just before the news, and she was telling me that, you know, um, they work part-time now, uh, both of her daughters who are in the, in the business, because it's so hard for them. She says she's, she's leaving the house at 6.30 in the morning. She doesn't get home till 7.30 at night. She's exhausted. I mean, is there an issue with doctors working too hard? Burnout is very common in, in, in our job. Um, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and that was even happening before the pandemic. During this last year, it's increased in different ways. Uh, but when we talk about part-time and full-time, um, so in general practice, when you're talking full-time, you, you could be talking over 80 hours a week. So we can't compare full-time in general practice to full-time in other jobs. Mm. Um, so, you know, the number of hours are, are still high, even if doctors are working part-time. Yes, because I'm looking at figures that have come out from a, a poll, basically, of medics commissioned to uh, to celebrate, it says here, the 73rd birthday of the NHS. More than 60% uh, of respondents said they want opportunities for remote IT access, online meetings, remote working in the future, uh, rising to 72% for trainees, uh, but also an awful lot more people. Um, more than a quarter of senior consultant physicians are expected to retire in the next three years. I mean, is the NHS doing enough to actually recruit people? Lots of people are being recruited. Uh, I know there are lots of vacancies out there as well. Uh, looking more at doctors, I, I, I know many young doctors fall off and don't want to carry on with their career as well. So there is leakage there as well. Uh, senior doctors are in more of a different uh, position because the, the changes with the NHS pension scheme in the last uh, few years uh, have led many senior doctors to retire early because they were getting hit by huge taxes as a result of their pensions. And many became part-time simply because of the, the pension taxes that were, were imposed on us. Yeah. And that was an HMRC decision, I presume, right? Y yes, with, with the government and Department of Health as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, that's the thing. The problem, I think, for an awful lot of people in medicine, perhaps, is that they get into it and then they, don't, they didn't realise quite how difficult it was going to be to have a life around it and are people not telling them that maybe not it's it you know tv and you know documentaries and stuff it comes across as a glamorous job it certainly isn't it's very hard work it's uh, you know physically demanding and mentally as well uh, and when i started off my career um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, I was doing, you know, 120 hours a mm. week. I was working um, on calls from Friday morning till Monday evening. And in those days, you know, young doctors died on the job. It was so horrendous. So I'm glad that overall the hours and the working situations have changed over that decade. But it's still 
it, the, the patient demands uh, and the mental stress as a result of making mistakes in that arena is very, very stressful for doctors uh, and hence why they're working part time. Mm. And what about the training regimen? Because we also heard during the pandemic that a lot of people were signing up for medical school because they wanted to join the NHS because they saw it as a sort of, you know, uh, a very worthwhile endeavour. Um, if that's the case, I guess we won't see the benefit of that for five or six years. Yes, it's a very difficult training route. It's hard work. Um, and like I said previously, some people qualify, um, do the job for a few years and realize, you know, it, it's not for them. They, they can't keep up with those with, with those demands. Mm. And also, you know, we're, we're looking at a better work life balance now. Um, so people don't really want to thrash themselves and become uh, become unwell by by working those horrendous hours that uh, are, are there are in some aspects of the NHS. Mm. I've never quite understood why um, that's had to be the case, though. I mean, why should, for example, junior doctors have to sleep in cupboards and, you know, sort of stagger about half asleep uh, all the way through their, their early working years? It doesn't seem to make much sense in this day and age. And it seems to me that there's obviously some kind of management failure going on, isn't there? It is better now. The hours are less. Uh, the shifts are, are, are less long than they used to be. Uh, but what the flip side is, is the intensity is much more. So, for example, a 12-hour night shift, shift, they wouldn't get any sleep or rest. They would be working intensely during that time. So although uh, the hours are a lot less from what I did 30 years ago, the intensity is very high. And again, that has, a, a, has an impact on uh, people's mental health. Hmm. Absolutely right. So, I mean, we've got a new Secretary of State for Health, and I'm happy to say that Sajid Javid said the words today, uh, that he is Secretary of State for Health, not Secretary of State for COVID. So if you were able to sit in front of him and say, here's what you need to do to improve our lot, as it were, as GPs, what would it be? I, I, I think it's a very positive move that uh, Sajid uh, is now um, Secretary for Health. Um, and what he's doing uh, with slowly, slowly releasing lockdown and reducing the restrictions, um, I think that's a good move as well, looking at the non-COVID consequences, which he's also mentioned, you know, there are other illnesses, cancers, heart disease, strokes that we need to focus on as well. Uh, specifically for general practice, I would like him to visit more grassroots GPs uh, and see what it's really like, because, you know, in some cases we are, it's very much like conveyor belt medicine. Mm. We only have 10 minutes per person. Uh, I have six doctors here, all but one works part-time, we have 9,000 patients, and sometimes it does feel like conveyor belt medicine, and it's and that leads to burnout as well. Yes, and if you say part-time, what does that mean for your practice as such? Does that mean they work three days and then three days off or three days on or what? Yeah, so in our practice, a full-time doctor would do eight clinics a week. Um, so I'm three-quarter time, so I do six clinics a week. Okay, and is that reflected in how much money you make then? Yes, obviously, the, the, if you're if you're full time, you will you will earn more money. Uh, but as I said previously, that the, the NHS pension changes that came, it was actually better for doctors to work part time than full time because of these horrific te uh, taxes that we that were imposed on us. Right. So, what happens if you work part time as opposed to full time in regards to your pension? Then, do you get less taxed? Yes, because you are below the, the threshold for certain types of taxation, which is actually very, very difficult to work out. Mm. And most accountants don't have a good handle on that either. No. Um, many doctors only realised when the brown envelope came through the door that they had to pay 30000 £40,000 extra tax because of the work that they had done over the last 18 months. Right. And is that something that they didn't have to do? I mean, why have they done it? Just to make a bit more money? Um, I think uh, I think it was to to claw back more money for the government, really. Because it sounds friend. like it hasn't worked very well. If you've all gone part time, they're not getting it anyway. It's counter it's counterproductive, yes. Because for me personally, it's better for me to work part time than it is full time. Yeah. And I was quite happy working working full time until two years ago that this situation made me cut down. Right. So the answer, indeed, it would seem to me in, in regards to why so many doctors are working part time is because of one, the taxation changes and two, um, people who may wish to work a little bit less anyway. So it seems to me that you should really be looking at hiring more GPs, shouldn't we? Uh, and that is the question. You know, we're, we, we were promised 5,000 uh, GPs, you know, even four or five years ago when Jeremy Hunt was in. Mm. Uh, in um, but we haven't really seen that. And in fact, 
doctor, more doctors have left probably than than we've gained. Right. Um, but luckily in our practice, you know, we've recently advertised and we've got two, uh, two or three young doctors who are very interested in joining us as partners. That's good news. Uh, now, I suggested to our earlier caller that one of the things that might regard, or might reduce, shall we say, the conveyor belt sort of doctoring that you currently do uh, would be to charge people a, a fee for actually seeing a doctor. Because I, I do honestly believe that, that would reduce the number of people who would come to you when sometimes they maybe don't really need to. Yes, you know, even if there was a small charge, uh, it would put some people off. Uh, but I think then we're going to the basics of the NHS that free from from cradle to grave. Yeah, but it's um, not, is it? I mean, everybody who pays tax is paying for it. I mean, I'm paying for it. I don't regard it as free. Yeah, it's it's paid in a, in a different way. Um, and, you know, so that I, I, I would feel bad, you know, if I asked somebody to pay to come and see us. Uh, because there are lots of vulnerable elderly people out there with mental illness that it may put them off as well. No, I, I suppose so. But the point is, is that the NHS is already now overwhelmed in so many different ways that something's going to have to be done. It can't just carry on like this. I mean, I've said uh, already this year, we'll get to, to winter regardless of what happens with COVID. There'll be another crisis. You know, there'll be another bed crisis. There'll be another overwhelming crisis. They won't have enough doctors, you know, enough beds. It's always the same every single year. Yeah, the, the, there is, uh, you know, always a crisis in the NHS, you know, each win winter, even before the yeah. pandemic. Uh, but luckily last winter, because of the COVID restrictions and the lockdown, there were actually less of other infections. So flu went down, uh, other types of respiratory illness went down. Um, but this winter, we are expecting those infections to, to come back and, uh, you know, be there with COVID. Yeah. So we're expecting a, a, a rough winter. Um, and I don't know the answer to this, you know, maybe our health secretary could, could shed light on this. I, I know over the last 10 years, there's been lots of cost cutting, uh, reduction of hospital beds, reduction of resources into primary care. Um, you know, I, I, don't have the, I don't have the solution um, politically what, what changes can be made. But, you, you know, I think we need more voices from grassroots um uh, to, to find out you know exactly what uh, primary care teams are, are going through at the moment no sure i appreciate that dr Irfan malik thank you as ever for taking time to talk to us gp from nottingham of course giving us the look uh, and the feel of what it's like to be a gp in this day and age and why so many people have decided to work part-time it's interesting isn't it that may, mo many of them have been forced into it uh, by tax changes which is pretty much counterproductive it seems to me if they were willing to work the extra hours before and now they're not because they're being forced to pay more tax. That makes no sense at all. And particularly since it would appear that most of them are getting around it by not paying the tax, by not going over a certain uh, uh, earning bracket. It doesn't make any sense at all. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk to Cathy Adams, travel editor of The Independent. Cathy, very good afternoon to you. Hello. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we were sort of hoping that there might be some good news for the travel community in Boris's announcements yesterday. He didn't quite give them that. Um, but <laughs> surely it's encouraging for the travel business that on July the 19th, if all of the things that he says he's going to do, he does, the travel will come next, won't it? Well, we should hope so. Yes, mm. exactly. So I was watching Boris's statement. Obviously, everybody was watching it with huge interest yesterday. And I think it's really important to say that from the 19th of July, Freedom Day... Everybody else is free to ditch social distancing and masks. But for the travel industry, we right. didn't quite get the news that we wanted. So all Boris could say is that the red list is going to continue. We sort of already knew that was going to happen. And he hinted at the fact that double vaccinated Brits are going to be able to escape quarantine from right. Amber destinations. But we don't know when yet. So right. we're still waiting for that. I'm hoping it's going to be a bit later on this week. So Grant Shapps is due to make an announcement later on this week, but we don't know. I mean, it's the news that everybody's hoping for. It makes so much sense. We're waiting for that vaccine dividend, but we're not entirely sure when it's going to come yet. And no. I'm, I'm just hoping that, I mean, for me, for the travel industry, it's going to be sometime this summer so we can salvage what is left, Something, essentially, yeah. of a summer season. Well, because, yeah. I mean, the big question for an awful lot of people, uh, and I would include myself in this, is is it worth booking anything? Can you book something? Can you even hope to book something? You know, will there be anything? What countries oh. might go green? <laughs> I mean, there's so much going on, you know. There is so much going on. Um, I mean, over the past few days, you know what, even over the past week, things have been moving kind of whiplash fast, and it's been so difficult to keep a handle on it. So... Mm. As far as we're concerned, at the moment, there are only a few nations on the green list, and most of them even are on the green watch list. So 
cases are spiking in the Balearics. So Ibiza, Mallorca, you know, huge holiday destinations, very, very popular with right. Brits. I've actually got a book to holiday to Mallorca for the start of August. Okay. Just who knows whether I'm even going to be able to go. Right. So they are the options at the moment. You know, big, big holiday destinations like mainland Spain, France, Italy, they're all on the amber list. But it isn't even that anymore. Like, we don't need to worry about the UK government. We need to worry about what other governments are saying about us. Yes. So, you know, Germany has taken the step this morning to relax rules against fully vaccinated Brits. But for me, I've only had one one dose and right. I'm not due to get my second dose until I think week after next. Right. So and there'll I'm be a lot of people in that, in, that, in that place and also a lot of younger people who haven't had any yet. Well, precisely, precisely. And what are they supposed to do? Right. You know, and if you haven't, what about if you haven't had a vaccination, you don't plan to have one? Will there be an alternative? Like, could you just say, if I take a, a, a test, will that be enough? So some countries that are more dependent on British visitors. So I'm thinking Spain, Portugal, Greece, you know, a lot of southern Europe, a lot of their economies are sort of predicated on, you know, a huge kind of British contingent arriving um, mm. every summer. So I would expect that they would be slightly more friendly to people that haven't had full a full dose of vaccination. So it might be the case that you have to take a PCR test, usually within 72 hours. That's kind of the, the standard rule that we've seen across, across the industry. But who knows? Things are changing, Mike. Things are changing every single day. And it is so frustrating for regular people yeah. to try and keep up with, with the rules because we're looking at the UK rules. Then we're also looking at what other governments are saying about us. And a lot of them are looking at, you know, spiking delta cases and thinking well is it worth you know them them coming in obviously there's a huge benefit to you know global tourism and mm. i'm a full proponent of the fact that we should all be able to travel as freely as we like yeah but other governments don't necessarily agree okay let me ask you just to stay there for a second kathy because sadly jav is talking let's have a listen rather than the blunt instrument of rules and regulations now today mr speaker i'd like to provide an update on another area where we'll be able to ease restrictions, the rules on self-isolation. Self-isolation has played a critical role in helping us to get this virus under control by denying the virus the human contact that it needs to spread. And I'm so grateful to the many, many people right across the UK who have selflessly done their duty, making sacrifices so they can help keep the virus at bay. Even though we've done everything in our power to support the people who've had to self-isolate, and yesterday we announced that we'll be extending financial support until September, I'm fully aware of how difficult it has been. But we can take hope from the fact that science has shown us a solution, just as it's done so many times in our fight against this virus. And that solution is our vaccine, which we know offers huge protection. The latest data from Public Health England shows that our vaccination programme has saved over 27,000 lives and has prevented over 7 million people from getting COVID. Well, this is Sajid Javid, the new Secretary of State for Health, who's about to get to what he's about to do. Uh, but we won't uh, wait for him to get to that, because I think we know what he's about to do. We're talking uh, to Cathy Adams. Cathy, I think what he's going to say, or what we've been told he's likely to say, uh, is that basically if you are pinged by the NHS app, uh, you will not have to self-isolate if you have been uh, given two vaccines, which might suggest that they will maybe do that as well for quarantining from, from holiday destinations, which, which they won't do today, but they will do eventually. Mm -mm. Yes, exactly. So we're, we're still waiting for an announcement from Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, which we're expecting a little bit later on this week. But the hope is that from maybe not the 19th of July, but from the end of July, start of August, people that go to amber destinations, which at the moment is the majority of mm. Europe and some incredibly popular destinations in there, that people aren't going to have to self-isolate, which is going to be amazing news for the travel industry. Yeah. And it just means holidaymakers, people visiting friends and family, finally they're going to be able to travel to these places and not worry about taking 10 days out when they get home. Yes, and I was going to ask you as well about other countries which you've touched upon who mm. might take a view about people coming from Britain. I was told yesterday mm -hmm. Cyprus um, had put us on their red list, which makes yes. it, I presume that makes it not impossible but difficult to go there. Exactly. So a lot of countries are looking at, you know, cases climbing here and making their own choices. But a lot of Southern Europe, I think, do also recognise the power of the British holidaymaker. And they recognise that we do have a lot of money and, you know, we are 
frequent visitors to these places. So Cyprus has put us on their red list. Mm. So confusing that we have to, you know, figure out UK red list, other country red list. But what that means is that people that aren't vaccinated, aren't double vaccinated, I believe they have to just take a PCR test within 72 hours of arriving. So it isn't a ban. It's just, you know, further, further restrictions to make, I suppose, to sort of put people off. But it will be possible to visit if you haven't been vaccinated. Okay. And finally, uh, what about uh, the Grant Shapps statement when it comes at the end of this week? Is it likely that he might put any, any other countries on a green list? So the next greenness reshuffle is on the 15th of August, I believe. So the government has said that it's going to... No, sorry, not the 15th of August. What am I talking about? It's at the 15th of July. I'm getting ahead of myself completely. Um, And what we're hoping from that, oh my gosh. I mean, they're always completely chaotic days, aren't they, where countries get reshuffled. What I think might happen based on the data is that the Balearics, they slide from green to amber. And it's looking likely that perhaps mainland Europe, we're not going to be seeing that in the next green list reshuffle. Mm. I expect that to go onto the green list around the start of August. And mm. that's when our vaccination um, system has essentially sort of gathered, you know, huge pace and also across Europe as yeah. well. Like most of mainland Europe will be further ahead with their vaccine rollout. But you know what? Nothing is guaranteed in this game. And it is just so frustrating to I try know. and play Greenlist Bingo and to try and put it your It really holidays. is. It's just a total um, just lottery, postcode so lottery of the worst kind. You know? <laughs> it is, yeah. Dreadful. All right. Well, listen, Cathy, thanks for your help. Appreciate it. Sorry for the interruption. No Sajid Javid still speaking. He's basically saying uh, that as of the 16th of August, people uh, who have had two vaccines will no longer have to self-isolate. Uh, basically, you will, if you've had the jab just before or after that date, you will have to wait two weeks until you become supposedly um, in that position. Anyone who has tested positive will have to self-isolate whether uh, you've been vaccinated or not. So you still have to self-isolate if you're testing positive. Um, But basically, if you are pinged, um, you won't have to self-isolate if you haven't tested positive, which is what you have to do currently at the moment until the 16th of August. So uh, there we have it. Uh, Sajid Javid making that announcement and uh, now being answered by uh, his Labour counterparts. But uh, I don't think we need to listen to that. Um, This is Talk Radio. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.